Hello and welcome to Warwick Podcasts. As the global financial crisis deepens, the debate about how we arrived at this point continues, as does the search for ways out of the recession. Professor Colin Crouch, Professor of Governance and Public Management at the University of Warwick, has described the model that led to the credit crunch as a system of privatised Keynesianism. In a recent paper, he explained how this model has led to financial meltdown and considers what changes are needed to resolve weaknesses in the global economy. I spoke to Professor Crouch about the paper and asked him what he meant by privatised Keynesianism. Colin, you've written about this question about what will follow the demise of privatised Keynesianism. Can you start by explaining uh, to me what you actually mean by privatised Keynesianism as opposed to common or garden Keynesianism? Well, original Keynesianism. Uh, Original Keynesianism are the economic doctrines associated with John Maynard Keynes, uh, the great British economist in the first part of the 20th century, whose uh, advice was more or less taken by dominant economic policymakers of the uh, of the middle years of the last century. And the basic thesis is that uh, during recessions, when everybody is cutting back at the same time, uh, uh, only government can reverse what might otherwise be a, a panic re- reaction by itself starting to spend and spending out of debt. And then later on, as the economy recovers and there's a danger of inflation, government starts to pay back its debts to reduce its own spending and therefore bring some balance. It was seen as a way in which uh, the trade cycles that had been very severe in, in earlier capitalism might be gentled. So government acts counter-cyclically. It, 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 it goes into debt in order to stimulate consumption and then when consumption is doing very well, it withdraws a bit. And historically, it proved to be really the first way in in human history that uh, ordinary people's consumption could actually fuel economic growth in a major way. Because ordinary, relatively poor people who might be quite risk-averse could uh, spend, use their resources to buy things, Uh, because government was ensuring they weren't threatened by very severe trade cycles. This model fell into some disgrace during the 1970s when it failed to cope with the very heavy inflations of the oil shocks and other commodity price rises of that decade. And there was a move away from that kind of counter-cyclical behaviour. And for a long time, it seemed as though, especially in the Anglo-American world, we were moving to a system of much more uh, true markets uh, without government intervention. But this financial crisis we've been going through has revealed to us that actually something else was happening in that we now see that uh, ordinary working people's consumption was being maintained and their confidence was being maintained by the fact that they themselves were getting more and more into debt, that you could take out mortgages on your house for uh, larger and larger multiples of its value. You could get a number of credit cards and run up huge debts on those. And so what was actually happening was that ordinary people's 
unsecured debt was replacing the role of the government under Keynesianism. Uh, and, and it's this that's come to a shuttering halt now. And I suppose in the in the previous model, the assumption was that in periods of growth, government would pay off the debt. But in the privatised model, that that ability to pay off the debt is is put onto the shoulders of the consumer, who I guess in recent years has seemed to be unwilling to to take on that responsibility of paying off the debts and instead landing ourselves with more and more debt. Well, there's the other half of the model to look at as well. Uh, and why was it that banks and, and other agencies were willing to let people take on debt that they had little chance, really, of paying back uh, in a reasonable time? And the reason was that extremely sophisticated markets in risk developed so that people would buy debt. Uh, they bought debt because they believed they could sell that on to other people who would buy the debt, because they believed they could sell that on to other people uh, in a constantly expanding uh, tree uh, with everybody making some money by being willing to take on debt and while by the risk of the debt being spread more and more thinly. And it looked like a pretty good model. Uh, the problem was, eventually, it lost any contact at all with the original, the original evaluation of the actual burden of the debt. Uh, people, the, the, a secondary market of, of debt being worth what someone would buy it for became completely detached from the original value of the debt. And banks were buying this stuff, selling it on, buying it in the morning, selling it on in the afternoon, never even actually opening up the documents to see what they'd bought. Uh, because uh, to have spent time working out what you'd bought would have meant you wouldn't make a nice quick deal on getting rid of it. And it's that, that what has produced what's become known as toxic paper. Toxic paper are all those debts that people bought without ever having the foggiest idea of what they'd got. And it is the that, that secondary market got completely detached from the primary market and uh, eventually people st there was a collapse of confidence. Some people started to query what they'd bought because of the collapse of various banks and the whole house of cards collapsed. So was it based, the, was the house of cards based on the assumption that the debt would not ever actually be repaid? Yes, probably, or uh, that, that assumes that anyone is really thinking that far ahead but but no one actually has responsibility for the long term in that way and if you are a trader working in a finance house uh, your job is to make sure that at the end of the year you've got a good balance uh, your bonus will be dependent on that the appreciation shown by your bank of you will be dependent on that and the health of your bank will be dependent on that so no one was in a position of saying really um what happens eventually. Because it, it stands to reason, and, and any knowledge of markets should show this, that uh, you cannot have constant expansion without ever having periods of recession. Uh, and there, there was a kind of belief that that had been solved. Uh, and the strange thing is we had one warning of this, because people believed this was the case with the dot-com bubble, which is a very similar phenomenon during the 1990s. And people started writing essays saying, roll over Adam Smith, the laws of supply and demand have been broken now. This thing can go onwards and upwards forever. 
Uh, but eventually people started to say what actually a dot-com company's worth, and that house of cards collapsed. So there was a strong warning of it. But yes, people did believe, they either believed that somehow this uh, uh, discovery of, of the the extremely extensive possibilities of sharing risk through secondary markets and derivatives would actually crack the problem, or they simply weren't bothering. So, so how did we get to a position then that what I guess many people would now see as being incredibly irresponsible behaviour and a, and a sort of gross short-termism of the worst kind actually become seen as being in the interests of the common good? Because we, for, for quite a while, we did all gain from it. We, we, we were all able to buy things that we wouldn't otherwise have been able to buy. Uh, and although the assets being used were these totally notional paper assets that have now collapsed, people were able to buy real things with them. And as a result, other people were able to produce and sell real things. So um, it, it was a, a curious case of where... Um, some behaviour that now is seen to have been very negative did bring real advantages to many people for a number of years. Uh, that's now all being torn up, and in a, in a, in a sense, it, it's all having to be unscrambled. But for a long while, we, many of us, uh, shared an interest in the continuation of that system, even though we didn't know at the time the system was the system. You mentioned that this system developed as a response, as a political response to um, inflationary pressures in the 1970s. Do we worry too much about inflation, or should we be more worried about debt? Well, I think this particular system developed initially as a market response. Actually, I, th I think people, that people discovered the possibilities of uh, secondary markets and of risk sharing. Uh, and developed some mathematical models that enabled risk to be shared in an extremely useful way, actually. I think that the first developments in it were in entirely benign. Uh, later on, two things happened. One, people started to exploit that, uh, uh, and it became far less benign. And then secondly, rather accidentally and incrementally, it became public policy, uh, mainly through governments... Uh, realising that mortgages were becoming important to maintaining the system and that uh, the strength of mortgages depended very much on the strength of house prices. And so governments would actually make sure that house prices in, for various, in various ways would, would continue to rise. And it, it's very odd that um, it... it it, it, normally when prices go up it's seen as bad news uh, the price of houses going up is seen as good news because it increases the assets available to the people who, who, who are buying them uh, and government was guilty in starting to make to try and make sure house prices kept on and on rising uh, in itself that should have been seen as something that couldn't go on indefinitely but to return to your other question, did we care too much about inflation? Um, both inflation and recession are very problematic in that they are, they are spirals, in that uh, w whether you talk about a period of rising prices or a per period of falling prices, both phenomena signal to people to reinforce the behaviour that made the thing bad in the first place. 
So with inflation, if prices are rising, people start to expect they will rise further. Therefore, we all start buying things more rapidly because we think they will become uh, uh, more expensive in the future. When we do that, we produce shortages of supply. That means prices go up, so there's more inflation. Recession works exactly the other way around. But both are situations which are very dangerous because uh, behavior reinforces itself. Ne negative Behavior that is, has negative consequences reinforces itself. Uh, and in that sort of situation, really, governments have to act because otherwise enormous damage is done if the market is just left to itself. Uh, governments probably did become oversensitive to inflation after the 70s. Uh, and they started, to, especially the European Central Bank, uh, started to see it as really the, the only evil that could happen. Um, th there were plenty of economists around warning them all of this. It's not as though everyone was taken a surprise. But the, 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 the financial institutions, the public institutions uh, like central banks, did become extremely sensitive to inflation. Uh, just as after the 1930s, they'd become extremely uh, sensitive to depression and recession. You mentioned the Central European Bank there, but I guess a lot of people would identify um, the approach of private Keynesianism and associate very more associate much more closely with an Anglo-American um, uh, philosophy. Um, to what extent is this model an Anglo-American model, and and has it affected? the American-British system more fundamentally than it perhaps might have done elsewhere. Yes. It, 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 you see, what was happening uh, in continental Europe during the 90s and the, 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 the present century was that traditional sources of security for working people, like strong labour rights, uh, strong welfare states, so that, that distinguishes the United States rather more than Britain from continental Europe. Uh, those things were, were, were bolstering people, uh, not as successfully as this model was doing in the Anglo-American world, actually, because consumer confidence remained weaker there. But they had those mechanisms in place, uh, with the exception of Spain, which anyway had a more regulated banking system. Most countries in continental Europe uh, did not have great booms in house prices. Um, they were rather stable. Uh, Germans in particular tend not to buy houses, actually, they, they rent. Uh, so it, that mortgage-driven model and also the credit card-driven debt model were very much Anglo-American. Um, it, it washed over into continental Europe and into Japan in two ways, um, partly because banks there wanted to get in on the act, and did, uh, and, and partly, of course, because... Uh, exporters in those countries were able to sell goods to us and the Americans uh, because we were producing all this phony money that we were then buying the real products with. So, so they, got in, they became implicated. But ordinary German, French, Italian, Dutch workers weren't benefiting from credit expansion and inflated mortgages in the way uh, people in the Anglo-American world were. It's also a model that's become very much associated with um, the political doctrines that have driven certainly American politics over the last 20 years, um, if not British politics as well. But you have indicated that there is a, an inherent tension between capitalism and uh, democracy, perhaps as 
uh, articulated in the American model. Where does that tension arise from and what's its nature? There is a problem in that capitalism left by itself uh, tends to produce upheavals uh, every now and again. Uh, in, in theory, if markets are working perfectly, then actually there's a permanent equilibrium and there are no big shocks. But markets never work perfectly. There are always distortions. And anyway, there are external shocks coming from outside the market system as, uh, for example, in the, um, the, the, the uh, inflationary crises of the 1970s, driven ultimately by Middle Eastern politics. So, so there are always exogenous shocks, and the market adjusts to these in, in rather dramatic ways. Uh, and that, left to itself, brings insecurity to the lives of ordinary working people. That didn't matter so much to 19th century capitalism, where ordinary people's consumption was pretty basic and was just gradually going up over a long period as people got slightly wealthier. Uh, most cons the most important consumption was consumption by wealthier groups uh, who, who were protected from uncertainty by their wealth. Uh, what's been, what was distinctive about the second half of the 20th century was uh, the capitalist economy became dependent on and thrived magnificently because of uh, mass consumption by ordinary working people. And this happened broadly for two reasons. One was the invention of modern mass production methods, largely by the American economy, gradually spreading to the rest of the world. Secondly, by public policy interventions like Keynesianism, like various kinds of state intervention you got in France, uh, which actually uh, protected ordinary working people from major market fluctuations. And so the, the great golden age of mass capitalism was actually dependent on capitalism itself or markets themselves being rather tamed by ultimately government action. Uh, the problem for capitalism comes when it, it tries to divest itself of that regulation and to get what seem to be the advantages of purer markets we now see how that has a tendency to return uh, the economy to, to more challenging fluctuations, which in turn hit the consumer confidence on which the whole thing was based. What I've called privatised Keynesianism was never actually designed into the system. Um, it, it, it came out of market processes, but is actually itself a kind of corruption of the market because it was dependent on people acting without accurate knowledge. Uh, and the true market always depends on very accurate knowledge. So this was a system that was actually flourishing precisely because knowledge wasn't accurate. People weren't bothering with knowledge, which is why it's proved to be an unstable system. Uh, but for up to a quarter of a century, it did seem to provide the answer as to how a less regulated capitalism could nevertheless provide stability. You talk there about um, public involvement in the market and regulation and the ability of governments to intervene, uh, either to mitigate a crisis or prevent one happening. But has the push towards globalisation prevented governments from now being able to take the sort of action that would alleviate problems at a national level, or does globalisation actually offer 
um, a way out of the current crisis. Yes, it, it, it makes it both worse, uh, as you indicate, in that individual governments can't control their own national economies, but it also makes it potentially better. Uh, one of the problems in the 1920s and 30s was precisely because governments did have control over their economies. They acted in a, in a, a protectionist way. They erected fortresses around themselves. This led to a general slump in trade, which made everything much, much worse. There is the possibility now that uh, governments perceive their part of a global economy, that they actually can, if they have a mind to it, and if they can see shared interests, they have a chance to achieve certain kinds of regulation that avoid the use of protection. The use of protection would not be an answer. And so I think in a way it may seem very paradoxical, but I suspect that globalization uh, makes it, certainly makes it likely that we will avoid what happened in the 1920s and 30s. Although we have seen over the last uh, few years a drift towards regional protectionism, haven't we? Does that pose a, a threat or an opportunity? Well, at least regions are larger units within which to continue trading uh, than, than individual countries. So something like the European Union is a pretty big uh, trading unit. Even if it's cut off for the rest of the world, it could, it could manage by itself. But I think... Uh, there is a perception of wider interdependencies. Uh, I, I, I don't think many governments in Europe or Japan or the United States really want to cut their consumers off from Chinese goods because cheap Chinese and other Far Eastern goods have been another way in which people have been able to maintain their living standards in recent years. Uh, nor do the, uh, the Chinese and other governments want to uh, to kill us off as economists since we're so important to them as markets. And there does seem to be a shared perception of this interdependence at the moment. hope I'm not being too optimistic, but it does seem to me there's, uh, th there's enough of a perception of that, there's enough mutual interaction and talking to each other to mean people ought to be able to guide us through this with a few collective approaches. One of the, 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 the actors that we haven't talked about yet, but with the rise of globalization have become more and more important is transnational corporations. To what extent does the future of our financial system, whatever future that that may be, depend on their involvement and their engagement and their action as opposed to the action of individual national governments or even regional trading blocs? I think it, it, it's extremely important for several different reasons. First of all, already, and, and, and quite apart from this financial crisis, uh, it, it is often multinational corporations that have a capacity to act and actually to act together at the global level in a way that governments find much more difficult. Uh, multinational firms are not responsive to national electorates. Uh, and aren't affected by nationalist sentiments. Uh, and that, that's, in a way, an advantage and a problem of the global world, in that there are these global actors who have an interest in the global system, but they're not democratically responsible uh, at all. So, so that's one reason. Uh, a second factor is that uh, I think in the financial system, we will now definitely see a return to more regulation.
Uh, that regulation will, of course, uh, this is unavoidable, mean that uh, banks and others can go out on risky limbs far less than they did. That's one of the purposes of having the regulation. While this will mean we won't get nasty shocks, it will also mean, of course, that uh, we won't be able to grow as quickly and as dramatically and to protect consumer confidence as dramatically as we've been doing in recent years. Uh, therefore, I suspect that quite early on in a new regime, the big multinational financial firms will start saying to government, oh, this regulation is too restrictive, you've got to release us from it. Uh, governments still remembering the experience of the last few years won't say to them, oh, all right, then we'll tear up the rules. They will say, well, uh, if you want us to relax the rules, we've got to have some codes of good behaviour that you abide by. Thirdly, the number of firms in the financial sector, the number of big firms, will have shrunk because of the, of the amalgamations that we've been seeing. Uh, and also, it, it's a sector that will be smaller, and it's a sector that has virtually explicitly now been said to be uh, fundamental to public policy, <clears throat> almost like a public utility. Banks almost like water supply. Uh, so the, the sects of the firms then become involved in a kind of game about taking on some of their own regulation. And they are increasingly have to be seen as public actors. They can't say, we're just here to make money. They, 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 they are, and part of their power depends on their being, um, uh, important actors in public space. So they, they start to acquire a political role. Uh, globally and nationally. And I, and I think that trend to a, a, a political role of co big corporations, not just in the financial sector, but especially there, is going to be something that we have to recognise far more uh, explicitly and officially than anyone's been really happy to do in the past. And that has a lot of implications for how we, we run politics and how we run business. Mm. The one group that we haven't really spent any time talking about in all of this discussion of government and finance and systems is Labour. The people at the end of the day who have largely taken on the debt over the last 10, 20 years to finance this system um, and who in a <coughs> repositioning of the political landscape, a repositioning of the financial landscape, probably seem to be getting a rather raw deal out of all of this. Where do you see Labour being at the, at the end of this process? Well, first of all, looking at it uh, in terms of organi organised labour, uh, in, in continental Europe, uh, with, with, with some with considerable exceptions towards the eastern part of the continent, organised labour is, continues to be an important actor in policy making in all these spheres, uh, in Britain and Poland, Lithuania, the United States. Uh, that's much less the case. Uh, that may start to change now as... Um, Labour's interests can no longer be taken for granted to be being solved at the individual level through debt. And so I think we should predict in those countries where organised labour retains a capacity, we should expect organised labour to, to come back in the way it never ceased to be absent in, in, in the Nordic countries in particular, to, to come back as, as a player. Because in a way, the, what looked like the solution to the worker problem um, with, with debt has proved not to work. Uh, more generally, look in, in terms of workers, 
there is the problem of uh, how workers interpret their problems uh, and, and do they see this as something that should make them angry with the banks and should make them want mm. um, should make them want um, uh, more regulation of banks or is it going to do as it did in the 1930s is it going to make people nationalistic and blame foreigners and there's there's a there's a politics to be played out there we don't yet know how it's going to go I'm not going to ask you to redefine the whole of the political and economic landscape and and map out um, what the world in 10 years time is going to look like but but at the heart of the repositioning of all of these factors, are we essentially t- are we essentially talking about a, a new social contract between all of the different players to find a way forward, or do you see this as a more fundamental questioning of the very basis upon which we have been operating in terms of finance and industry and the political relationships between those things and state government? Fundamental questioning is limited by the non-availability of alternatives. And when people were remaking the world after the Second World War, there seemed to be an alternative model in the Soviet bloc, in the Soviet Union, which had actually, during the 20s and 30s, shown itself considerably more successful than Western capitalism. And a lot of the reshaping that took place was done not actually in, 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 in a feeling that that might be a superior model, but in a fear that, that working people might think it was, as many in, in, in France and Italy did think. And, and so institutions were very much constructed with that in mind. Uh, and so in particular one got this rather large amount of state intervention of various kinds to try to ensure there wouldn't be the instability in economies that might lead workers and peasants to go off and, and vote communist. Uh, that is now absent. Uh, the, 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 the only other, uh, the only real alternative model in the world to Anglo-American capitalism, or at least to capitalism, is radical Islam, which doesn't seem particularly relevant to these issues we're talking about. Uh, and so there is that lack of alternatives at the present time. Uh, it, I think we're more likely to see uh, rearrangements around the capitalist model which I think have to see a re-entry of organised labour, which it, it, it hasn't been seen off as it was thought the private debt model would. I think uh, a, a kind of this, what I was also talking about before, a kind of increased, acknowledged, explicit political role for major corporations, which has a number of uncomfortable constitutional implications that we don't really know how to solve yet. Uh, I think those two things uh, will be part of the new political assembly. Uh, And I do think also, though, that uh, coping with xenophobia and racism uh, as responses to globalisation is going to to loom large as well. Because the, um, the various social contracts of the the post-war years which which, um, led to enormous amount of political consensus across the old divides uh, right through the the last part of the last century uh, left out really coping with 
with these questions. Uh, after the defeat of fascism and Nazism, the world thought, oh, well, we've seen that off. That's gone for good. That's in the historical dustbin. It has returned in country after country in recent years, uh, with the, even the Scandinavian countries not free of, of big doses of racism. Uh, the issue with radical Islam, of course, intensifies this considerably. So I think we have to expect uh, quite a lot of xenophobic behaviour uh, adding to uh, the toxic mix. One advantage of the capitalist system, which it definitely demonstrated over the, 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 the Soviet one, is because it, it, it allows initiatives to come from quite a number of points and because it tends to prevent extreme accumulations of power, it does uh, allow for innovation and for novelty and for gradual adjustment. Uh, and it, it's shown that capacity in a remarkable way over the last 200 years. And I don't think there's any reason to believe that it's completely run out of that adaptive power yet.